As I've already said this evening, we're starting a new series looking at the book of Joshua. And this evening is an an introduction to the book of Joshua. We're looking at the first chapter, or we shall be looking at the first chapter. Our first reading was the last chapter of Deuteronomy. We're now going to read the first chapter of Joshua. Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong, and of a good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land, which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the host, and command the people, saying, Prepare ye victuals, for... Within three days ye shall pass over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God giveth you to possess it. And to the Reubenites and to the Gadites and to half the tribe of Manasseh spake Joshua, saying, Remember the word which Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you, saying, The Lord your God have given you rest and have given you this land. Your wives and your little ones and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side Jordan. But ye shall pass before your brethren armed, all the mighty men of valour, and help them, until the Lord have given your brethren rest, as he have given you. And they also have possessed the land which the Lord your God giveth them. Then ye shall return unto the land of your possession, and enjoy it, which which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side, 
Jordan toward the sun rising. That's on the east side of the Jordan. And they answered Joshua saying, All that thou commandest us, we will do. And whithersoever thou sendest us, we will go. According as we hearkened unto Moses in all things, so will we hearken unto thee. Only the Lord thy God be with thee, as he was with Moses. Whosoever he be that doth rebel against thy commandment, and will not hearken unto thy words, in all that thou commandest him, he shall be put to death. Only be strong and of a good courage. The book of Joshua can be seen to be a continuation of the preceding book, the the fifth book, the fifth and last book of Moses, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses, followed by his burial by the Lord. And also we see in that last chapter of Deuteronomy that there was 30 days of mourning throughout Israel, or the Israelites, the children of Israel. The beginning of the book of Joshua is a seamless transition from the book of Deuteronomy. For the sake of continuity, it's as well for us to read all of it, as I've already done, Deuteronomy, the last chapter, chapter 34, and also the first chapter of Joshua. As we've just read in Joshua chapter 1, Moses' successor, Joshua, was spoken to by the Lord about crossing over the river Jordan within three days into the land that the Lord had given to the children of Israel. Is it it, the land that was promised in the first place to Abraham and then to his son Isaac and then to Isaac's son Jacob and finally now all these years later over 400 years later the children of Israel would enter into the land to possess it to inherit it it would be their inheritance And we also see in chapter 1 that the land would be divided up amongst the tribes of Israel. We also see in chapter 1 that the Reubenites, the Gadites and half of the tribe of Manasseh were to cross over with the rest of the Israelites and help them conquer the land of Canaan despite them having already been given their portion of the inheritance on the east side of the River Jordan. They'd already been given their rest. Even so, they were required to cross over the Jordan with the others and help them to conquer the land. And if you've got a a Bible with Bible maps in the back of it, you'll be able to see very clearly in in any decent Bible map how the land was divided up with... On the east side of the Jordan, the land which is now called Jordan, the Kingdom of Jordan, and um, various other parts of that that part of the world, that was the inheritance of Gad, Manasseh, or at least half of the tribe of Manasseh, and Reuben. The other half of the tribe of Manasseh, they also had their own inheritance on the west side of the Jordan with all the other tribes. First of all, we do well to consider Moses, whom Joshua succeeded. 
I couldn't really start this book of Joshua without at least making a mention of Moses. And as it's turned out, half of my sermon is taken up with considerations of Moses. I just couldn't help myself there. So much to say about Moses, whom Joshua succeeded. Despite being dead and buried, Moses is nevertheless referred to as the servant of the Lord, no less than 13 times in the book of Joshua. And that ought to tell you something about a man who in the New Testament epistle to the Hebrews is said to have been faithful in all God's house as the Lord's appointed leader in Israel. That was Moses, faithful in all God's house. The servant of the Lord. Moses was a man whom the Lord spoke to face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. Sometimes we take it upon ourselves, I'm guilty of this, we take it upon ourselves rightly or wrongly to refer to certain Christian men or women as men or women of God. You know, I've done it, I've said, oh, that's a man of God, that's a woman of God. That's my own, um, that's my own thoughts. And that's what I've, that's the conclusion I've reached. That someone is a man of God. I like to think that person is a man of God, although I can't really see into that person's heart. But when it comes to Moses, he really was a man of God. There's not even a hint of speculation about it. He was a man of God. How do we know that? Well, he's referred to as Moses, the man of God, six times in the Bible. Once would be enough, wouldn't it, for us to know that Moses really was a man of God. But he's, as I say, six times he is referred to as Moses, the man of God. Yet for all that, Moses did not cross over the River Jordan. In fact, of all the people in the generation of Israelites that were delivered from their afflictions in Egypt, only two of that generation crossed over the Jordan and entered into the land of Canaan. Two people. Joshua was one of them. And the other one was Caleb. That was it. That doesn't mean to say only two people, two Israelites, entered into the land of Canaan. As I've just said, two from that original generation that were delivered from their afflictions in Egypt. But then 40 long years passed where the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. Most of them, their carcasses fell in the wilderness because of their unbelief. But even so, according to Numbers chapter 26 and verse 51, there were 600,000 fighting men that crossed over the Jordan into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And it's estimated that that would mean that there were about 2 million Israelites in all. If there were 600,000 fighting men, you had the women and the children and so on. You've got about 2 million Israelites that entered the land of Canaan after 40 long years of wandering in the wilderness. You'd have to ask why Moses, the man of God, 
was not one of those two million or so Israelites. Why he, why wasn't he one of them? Why did he not lead them? Why did he die before they entered the land? We've seen in Deuteronomy chapter 34 that he died. That he was buried by the Lord. Having seen the land from afar. But he didn't enter the land. That man of God. Why? What was it all about? And the answer to that can be found in Numbers chapter 20. I'm not going to be taking you all over the Bible. You can listen carefully. uh, uh, Or if you want you can look at it yourselves. Numbers chapter 20. I'm going to read Numbers chapter 20, verse 7 to 12. And this tells us why Moses did not enter the land of promise. Okay, Numbers chapter 20, verse 7. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, Thou and Aaron thy brother, Aaron was the high priest, Moses' brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. Water from the rock. It's amazing, isn't it? This is the God who, for, for whom all things are possible. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank. And their beasts also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron. Because ye believe me not. To sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore ye shall not bring this congregation. Into the land which I have given them. See it's there in that passage. From those words there are those who simply conclude. That Moses did not bring the Israelites into the land, into Canaan, because he disobeyed the Lord when he struck the rock. Not only did he strike the rock once, he did it twice, they say, even though the Lord had merely instructed him to speak to the rock. However, there would appear to be more to it than that when you study the passage. After all, the Lord told Moses to take his rod which implies that he may well have been instructed to strike the rock as well as to speak to it, as as he was required to do on a previous occasion. We can't dismiss that possibility that the Lord had instructed him to strike the rock. Besides, the brother of Moses, Aaron, was also forbidden from entering the land of Canaan, even though it was not he Who struck the rock? What seems to be apparent is that Moses lost his temper and it would seem that so too did his brother Aaron. 
In so doing, they dishonoured God and they suffered the consequences for their disobedience. Interestingly, Moses' conduct is described as unbelief. I found one of the commentators very helpful. The commentator said, we must understand that the lack of belief with Moses stood with which Moses stood charged was not a lack of faith in the power of God but a lack of obedience to the will of God bearing in mind that the two faults of disbelief and disobedience are but two sides of one inward fact as Christians we can have a genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ but we can still be guilty of unbelief not trusting in the Lord. Who in here, Christians I'm talking to, is not guilty of not trusting the Lord? It's something that we're very good at, even as born-again Christians. In fact, when it comes to having a God-given faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was to come into the world about 1,500 years later, there was nothing lacking In the way of saving faith when it comes to Moses. That's for sure. For example, in the chapter of faith, Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament. It is written in verses 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He had everything as a prince of Egypt, the adoptive son, the adopted son of the daughter of Pharaoh. He forsook all of that to be numbered with the children of Israel, the Hebrews, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward in other words Moses he forsook all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking for something far better and he was storing up his treasures in heaven Clearly Moses had a genuine saving faith in the Saviour and for what it's worth I can't help thinking that it was none other than the Son of God himself, the one whom Moses was trusting in for his salvation who buried him when he died. In one of his Old Testament appearances, we we see in various places in the Old Testament where God appears to people. For example, the Lord appeared to Abraham in the heat of the day. And when you study the whole passage, you can't help thinking, well, that was the Son of God in one of his Old Testament appearances, his pre-incarnate appearances in the Old Testament. And I tend to think it would have been the Son of God who buried Moses before the children of Israel entered into the land. Despite Moses having had a temper tantrum and dishonouring God, we can dismiss any idea that he somehow uh, had no saving faith and, and he, or that he lost his faith 
and he therefore lost his salvation from sin, that he lost all of that. Not at all. We don't believe that. I trust we don't believe that you can lose your salvation. We hold to that wonderful truth that if a person is truly saved from his or her sins, that that salvation is forever. And praise be to God for that. However, what we can see with the death of Moses, who saw the land from afar, but never brought the Israelites into the land, is that sometimes there are very serious consequences for the Lord's people when they are disobedient and not trusting in him. But even then, even then, as we see with Moses... We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, according to God's purpose. Moses was most certainly called by God to be uh, to lead the Israelites for 40 long years in the wilderness. And most significantly, having been chosen unto salvation before the foundation of the world, Moses was called with a holy and effectual call. He was saved and justified by God. He had a very real saving faith in Jesus. We know that because his name is in the chapter of faith in Hebrews, chapter 11 in the New Testament. No doubt about it. Also, about 1,500 years after the death of Moses, Jesus said, to the unbelieving Jews, had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Moses, he wrote about Jesus, and we can be sure that he preached to the children of Israel about the Lord Jesus Christ, who would one day come into the world. We can be sure that even though Moses succumbed to angry outbursts and even though he never did enter the land that the Lord gave to earthly Israel as their inheritance, his life bore testimony to the fact that he was a man of God. Consequently, the hope of glory that Moses had was fulfilled when, upon his death, we can be sure that he entered into his heavenly rest, clothed in garments of salvation and covered with a robe of righteousness, the righteousness of the God of his salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would eventually come into the world and bear all of Moses' sin in his own body on that cross. And not just the, the sins of Moses, including the sins of his angry outbursts and unbelief, but the sins of all who trust in him. The same can be said about the Apostle Paul. Sure, he was far from perfect. Moses, we see he had his angry outbursts. Uh, and as for Paul, by his own admission, he was the chief of sinners. And even after about 30 years of being a Christian, he nevertheless called himself a wretched man. We see that in Romans chapter 7. Paul saying, oh wretched man that I am. He didn't stop there, did he? What did he say next? Having declared himself 
to be a wretched man, having been a Christian for about 30 years and, and, and being a, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. A wretched man that I am, I thank God through Jesus Christ. And we say amen to that. Also, Paul was a man who could confidently say, we are, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul, that wretched man, he was certain that when he died, he would go to be with Jesus. How else could he say? We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body, in other words, dead, physically dead, and to be present with the Lord. He was able to say that because, all importantly, his trust was not in himself, but in Christ. And, to, and despite all his wretchedness, with God's enabling grace, he lived out his earthly life, doing the work that God had prepared beforehand for him to do. As Paul testified, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. That wasn't in any way a boast coming from, from, from Paul. I trust we can all say that as Christians and it's not boasting in ourselves if we say I have kept the faith. Praise God for that. Because it is a God-given faith. It's a God-given faith. Paul was bearing testimony to it being a genuine God-given faith with the consequence that he fought a good fight with that God-given faith and he finished his course with that God-given faith in Jesus. All glory to God who graciously saved and kept Moses, Paul and everyone else who has ever truly trusted in Jesus for their salvation from sin and for their acceptance before a holy and righteous God. We're not people who say, well, when I die, I hope I go to be with Jesus. Not at all. If we have a genuine faith in Jesus, we know that we are safe in his hand. Jesus has said, my sheep know my uh, know my voice. They hear me and I, they follow me. I give unto them everlasting life and they shall never perish. Secondly, the Israelites prepared to pass over the Jordan to possess Canaan. We're going to look at, we're finally going to look at uh, Joshua chapter 1 now. I, I, I did tell you, I, I couldn't resist spending time considering Moses. I, I trust you can see why now. I'm going to read verses 10 to 11 in Joshua chapter 1. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people saying, pass through the host and command the people saying, prepare you victuals for within three days. Ye shall pass over the land to go in to possess the land which your, the Lord your God giveth you to possess it. 
if you are a, a true Bible student, and really, if you're a Christian, you, you should be a Bible student. And by that, I mean a student of the entire Bible, not just a few of your favourite passages in the New Testament. I'm talking about being a student of Old Testament and New Testament. If you are such, you might like to join the dots with very straight lines between an Old Testament prophecy and what you've seen as its fulfilment in the New Testament. And perhaps you might like to join the dots and draw a nice straight line between what you see as a picture or a type of something in the Old Testament Draw that line to what you see as its fulfilment. That picture in the Old Testament, yeah, I know what that's pointing to. That's a big signpost to whatever it is. And you join the dots with a nice straight line. Not literally, but in your mind you do that. I'm someone who likes to do that. I, I, I enjoy doing that. But you do have to be a little bit careful when you do that. It's good because it, it you, when you do that, it shows that you, you're, making connections that you're looking at one book there uh, the bible from genesis through to revelation and it's good if you can make connections from a book somewhere in the old testament to a uh, some a passage somewhere in the new testament but you've got to be careful for example take joshua whose book we've just started looking at this evening you wouldn't be wrong in saying that joshua is a type of Jesus. Even his name has the same meaning as Jesus. Jehovah is salvation. He is most definitely a type of Jesus. Also, Joshua led the Israelites, and no doubt he was a faithful servant in God's house, as was his predecessor, Moses. However, we need to be a little bit careful because there is a big difference between Joshua and Jesus. Even though they have the same name and even though Joshua is a type of Jesus, Jesus is the Son of God and he is faithful over his own house, the church. Not faithful in God's house, but faithful over his own house, the church. We see that in in the epistle to the Hebrews. Also take Old Testament circumcision. It was a visible sign of being in covenant with the Lord. And it was also a seal of the promises associated with that covenant. Such as receiving an earthly inheritance. The land of Canaan. On the flip side of that. Those who were not circumcised in the flesh were cut off from God's people. They had no part in the inheritance if they were not circumcised in their flesh. You might like to draw a line from Old Testament circumcision to New Testament baptism. That is a line that a connection that people often make. After all, New Testament baptism, it's also a sign, it is also a seal of belonging. Just like, um, just like circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign and a seal, so too is New Testament baptism a sign and a seal. Do that, draw that line 
as long as you appreciate that Old, Old Testament circumcision is not an exact representation of Christian baptism. Just think about it. Things don't have to be exact. We don't have to look for exact um, the type fitting the, the thing that it represents exactly. They're helpful, but they're not always exact. For one thing, baptism is only for those who show repentance towards God. People who have a genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. People who have shown repentance towards God are candidates for baptism. Whereas circumcision was for all eight-day-old males, people who clearly would not have um, shown repentance towards God or faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, this is a big one as well, females were excluded. Circumcision was just for male children. Also, take the promised land, Canaan, which the Israelites were preparing to possess after first passing over the River Jordan. The River Jordan is thought to depict or be a picture of death. And Canaan is thought to be a picture of heaven. However, think about it. As has already been pointed out, Moses, he didn't cross over the Jordan, didn't he? Did he? He never entered the promised land. The land that was given to Israel. Also, although the land of Canaan was given by the Lord to Israel for an inheritance, they faced many bloody battles ahead. The first one being Jericho. Many other battles as well, resulting in death, bloodshed, as they cast out the inhabitants of the land. Does that sound like heaven to you? There is a lot about heaven in the book of Revelation. If you want to know about heaven, look at the book of Revelation. Much of it is hard to understand, isn't it? But not all of it. For example, in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4, it is written, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That's heaven. We don't see that in the land of Canaan. For me, and I trust for all of you who have a heavenly hope. Heaven is a place where a great multitude, which no man can number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stand before the throne and before the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and they cry with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. That's heaven. Perhaps a more precise parallel is that passing over the river Jordan signifies your being crucified with Christ and possessing Canaan points to being raised up to new life 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, being raised up to new life in Christ in a world that is hostile to Jesus and hostile to his church. A world in which you, dear Christian, wrestle each day. You have your battles each day. Not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. But you do so wearing the armour of God. We heard quite a bit about the armour of God this morning. The armour of God, that God has graciously supplied all of his people. And the armour of God consists of the belt of truth, where Jesus, he is the truth. The breastplate of righteousness, where Jesus is your righteousness. Shoes of the gospel of peace, where Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And he is your peace in a world that is hostile to you. A world that hates Jesus. And above all, you have the shield of faith. That is faith in Jesus who loved you and who gave himself for you. Jesus who has said, lo I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Therefore, Canaan represents the world, I would say. Even so, you are not alone. The captain of the Lord's hosts, he is with you. I don't mean Joshua, I mean Jesus, who saved you by his grace, by his sacrificial death, and by his triumphal resurrection from the dead. And he will deliver you from all the fiery darts, so much so that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Amen.